I'm Bill Dutton. I'm a professor of Internet Studies at the Oxford Internet Institute, and I'm a fellow at Balliol College. And uh, what a miracle that this is almost the exactly right size audience for this room. So uh, anyway, that's uh, wonderful. I, I'm glad to see so many people. And I had no idea, so no idea how to pitch this, whether everybody here is uh, completely uh, devotees of Facebook and so forth, or whether people think Facebook is the curse of uh, the modern age and what have you. So, uh, so I hope we have a range of opinion. And I hope to uh, not take too long so that we have a lot of time for discussion, because I know that people have quite strong views on this. And I apologize in advance if, if I hurt anybody's uh, uh, feelings on this. I think it always raises controversy when you talk about what should be public. What's, what's public? What's private? There's no general answer. It's something we negotiate every day in real life, and we're going to have to negotiate it every day and, and, and uh, throughout time on, on, on the, in the digital world as well. So uh, there's not an easy answer. But I, I, what I'd like to do, I, I was just asked to talk on this topic. But it, um, I, in 1999, I did a book called Society on the Line. And the subtitle was Information Politics in the Digital Age. And because then I thought, actually, most of the most critical issues about uh, the internet and new technology are going to be about who gets access to what, and, and about you, but also what you get access to about other people. And that the politics of information access are the core issues of, uh, of the digital age. And so this question actually fit very well with that. So I, I will try to pursue it as best I can. What I'm going to do is, is uh, clarify what the issues are, because I maybe, you know, this is a very broad question. And so I want to try to make, make it a bit more concrete about what some of the issues are. Uh, then I want to give you a perspective on the value of the internet, the social role that the internet plays, and why it's so vital to protect the, the role that it is playing in society. I think it's a key resource for liberal democratic societies, and how it is putting put at risk by, if we have a panic and over-respond, over overreact to, to serious problems, but not, not things that cannot be dealt with through indivi by individual actions, by industry, by regulation that's well-judged, well and so forth. So, uh, so I will raise the issues. I'll, I'll spend a little time talking about the value of the internet, and in that I'll introduce the fifth estate, the concept of mine, and, uh, and then come back to the issues. And, and hopefully, we'll have time for discussion. I don't, but again, I, uh, I should say, you may have guessed I'm an American. And if I am used to being interrupted, if you, uh, if you wish to stop me any time during my talk, that is fine. I'm happy to deal with it, because I'm also going to show you some data. And I, and I realize that once you see a chart, it raises as many questions as it may answer. And you may not agree with my interpretation. So I'm happy to debate at any point in time. Um, this, uh, I just, <laughs> this may seem like what a ridiculous slide to begin with. But that's me in grade school in St. Joseph, Missouri. And uh, before the digital age, 
uh, before anybody dreamed of computers in the home and so forth. And I, and I, where did I find this? Of course, uh, I found it on Facebook. And I didn't tag that. Somebody else tagged that. And of course, um, I thought I was quite cute when I, as a kid. But, but you can imagine, uh, what I wanted to make the point of is that you don't, you may think, I don't want to deal with the digital age because, you know, I don't need it. I'm out of it. This, I'm an analog person, what have you. And my point would be, uh, you have no choice. Uh, that uh, in the digital age, you don't have to be online for you to be online, okay? Uh, here is a photograph from the 50s that uh, in a small town in Missouri that ends up in the worldwide internet and with my name tagged to it. And it could have been an embarrassing photograph, it could have been uh, silly, or it could have been a, a great photograph, whatever. But I had no, this was not my doing. This was someone else's doing. Fine with me, I'd not worried about it. I, I've gotten over that a long time ago, but uh, uh, other people are worried. So it's not something that you can say, I can check out of this because I'm not on Facebook or anything. You are, you probably will be, or you will already are on Facebook. You just don't know it. And, and you're on other, other kinds of, so, you know, in, in fact, in the digital world, we wonder about somebody you can't find online. If, <laughs> if you can't find somebody online, you sort of, well, I wonder what, what, what's the deal here. Uh, they're sort of uh, un, uh, invisible. Um, let me first begin with saying, okay, how did this come about? And I, I just want to remind everybody that you all know that um, the, I think, sharing and openness is key to the culture of the internet. When the, the internet began as a, uh, well, as ARPANET in the late 60s, early 70s, as a, as a project funded by the Advanced Research Projects Agency of the U.S. Department of Defense, but it wasn't a defense project at all. It was primarily computer scientists figuring out how they could share computer resources around the world. So how could they get, uh, and back in 74, I remember sitting in a dark room at a computer with a graduate student in computer science, and he showed me how we could get on, look at the mainframes of computers around the world, see what software they had, so forth. I thought, wow, this is really quite incredible that all of a sudden we can share the same as if they were on our desktop. Now, you know, everyone in the room can do that from home and uh, uh, you have millions, millions and millions, billions of computers around the world that you can get access to if people wish you to have access. Um, so this sharing resources was deeply embedded in the formation of the internet. Um, and it's constantly reinvented, well, like in open science, people thought this, you know, just as they share resources in computer science, we don't want secrecy in, in science and therefore the sharing and opening up of science, science publishing, for example. And now in even in open government, the idea that not only should we have government documents accessible online, but we should be able to deeply link to government documents so that we should have them described well enough that you could, when you ask a question, you will go to the cell of a spreadsheet that addresses your question so that actually not just getting a document online in text, but actually being able to go inside, linking inside a document to exactly what you're looking for. So actually everybody's working to even make documents and 
uh, online materials even more open. And of course, everyone knows about Wikipedia. Um, you may think it's uh, a travesty that people refer to Wikipedia, but uh, of course, professors used to penalize students if they referred to Wikipedia or any encyclopedia, and now professors cite Wikipedia in their work, and it's just amazing. Uh, the trans translation of Wikipedia is, of course, an encyclopedia created online uh, and co-produced by people around the world. So, uh, not you know, there are not millions of people contributing every article, but there are three or four people around the world who choose to edit an article on ARPANET or whatever you might have, and they can correct, they can uh, criticize, they can they can try to correct other people's entries, and they're. Whole, oh, it's very managed very well, it's competitive with other encyclopedias, and it's constantly being updated. There are similar, Wikipedia, there are similar projects like Wikipedia in China and other countries that are uh, in other languages. There's a Chinese Wikipedia as well. I mean, there are all sorts of these open source co-created uh, encyclopedias. There's also a lot of software, open source software, um, that has been created by people distributed around the world. So this idea of sharing, collaborating, uh, opening up uh, software so that people can contribute to uh, developing it, this is the part of the really basic culture of the internet. Um, but it's raised some real, real issues, obviously, and uh, uh, some of them are very, very specific. I mean, you, one of the common issues that you see in the news now is uh, over. Uh, say, people who use Facebook. Facebook is a social networking site and uh, one of the, the most popular. People spend more time in Britain on Facebook than any other page, more than Google, for example. Uh, and, but that's time spent because people do spend time on Facebook. But it's probably the, one of the most important sites in Britain and it enables people to network with other people. And when you sign up for Facebook, it asks you for, you know, what is your birth date? What year were you born? What month were you born? What's your gender, et cetera, et cetera? Actually, they're very pretty harmless questions about gender and address and where you went to high school, where you went. Because I put where I went to high school or where I went to grade school, I got this photograph of me in grade school because some old grade school buddies found me and, and uh, uh, sent me, uh, alerted me to the photograph. Um, so they're pretty harmless, except, you know, sometimes you do things you don't like. I put my year of birth and I didn't realize I had set that publicly and all of a sudden when I was, I think I turned 60 and I started getting all these emails saying, hey, happy birthday, I didn't know you were that old. <laughs> <laughs> I said, who, I went up through the office, I said, did somebody send something out that I'm, you know, how old I am and everything? He said, no, it's on Facebook. And <laughs> so. So anyway, but The Guardian has published my birth date, the, the, Der Spiegel has published my birth date, so it's not just Facebook, but I've made that private now. I've said, no, I do not want the year of my birth. I'm too sensitive about that. And so, uh, uh, but other people, and you learn over time, you realize that you're, you have to set privacy setting on what you want people to know, what you don't, what, and now companies are competing, Facebook and Google, Google Plus, uh, a new entry in social networking to create privacy settings that are easy to use and that are, that are viewed as safer for children and others so that they can adjust what they want 
public what they don't want public. In an older era, it's like if something's online or something's either public or private. I mean, today, I think children are growing up and, and users of the internet are growing up to realize that they can manage privacy at all sorts of levels of detail. So they can say something, you know, in the future, we will be able to say, uh, I don't want my family to see this, but I want my friends to see that, or I want my family to see this, but no one else. Um, just as you try to manage privacy in everyday life, uh, you will manage privacy online. But it doesn't always work. I mean, we, there's a que famous questions that about, uh, you, people have asked people, has anyone violated your privacy recently? And, um, and people, a lot of people answer yes, maybe 20% of people that are surveyed. And then they say, who, who did it? Was it government? Was it big business? And it was your family. You know, usually the most common response is your family and friends are the ones who, who say, tell somebody something that you didn't want told about you and so forth. So, but anyway, the, you always have problems in real life and in online about perfectly managing what controlling information. But another thing is uh, uh, track uh, location location aware technologies. Echo is one. Uh, Echo, there's an application called Echo Echo, and so I, my, I echo my daughter, um, who's not a young kid anymore, she's 27, but she, I echo her and she will reply, say, accept it, and then I can see exactly where she is and exactly where I am. So we have two dots on a map, whether we're across the world from each other or whether we're 10 minutes from each other in Oxford or something. I can see exactly the co-location of, of who we are because we are both on iPhones or both, both have Echo Echo applications. I think it's a great application. So even if I'm not trying to meet her, if I just sort of, where is Eva? I can echo her and I sort of know exactly where she is and, and I can text her or call her if, if I'm wondering what in the world are you doing there? So, um, but it obviously raises issues because now your location information is, is available to others, to company or government or others, if, if they, you may not even give permission to, to look at your location. So tracking or surveillance of individuals by, through their mobile phone is a huge issue. And of course, WikiLeaks, we know that WikiLeaks has raised huge issues over confidentiality and, and the safety of individuals that were named in diplomatic cables and so forth. So that uh, it creates major threats to to uh, well, for the safety of individuals and the and the and they de and delegate diplomatic negotiations as well. And the Arab uprisings and the England riots, of course, have also raised questions about how people are using social media uh, for good or ill, and and what could be done about it. Should people people be uh, disconnected from social media or the internet? And uh, hopefully, we'll get in that get into that. I mean, there's two reactions. There's this one, the famous quote by Scott McNeely is, uh, you know, you have zero privacy anyway. <laughs> Just get over it. And I think that's, that's not, I, I think that's, I th my own view is that, you know, there are multiple rights we need to pursue. Privacy, freedom of expression, and, and we could go on in terms of uh, the uh, rights that we may have in everyday life and online. And more and more, our everyday, all the human rights that we think about day to day are being fought over online. 
they're being actually there's a battle going on about our human rights that are online that are actually as important and replacing some of the battles of earlier eras about how we would respect human rights in the offline world. And I think this rising importance of the internet makes it so. But we have to negotiate those. How does privacy, how is privacy balanced with freedom of expression? We may say freedom of expression calls for openness, but if it means exposing medical records or private personal information, then we have to, read, you know, we have to compromise on freedom of expression in order to balance that with appropriate privacy guard guidelines. So it's this balancing and negotiation that's really quite critical, I think. But these are not just personal issues, and I and the WikiLeaks is an example, but it's not just an issue of, you know, your kids doing the right privacy settings on Facebook. It's absolutely, these are, um, uh, uh, the Secretary of State in the U.S., Hillary Clinton, has spoken a lot about, uh, you know, the Internet and filtering, national filtering and, and suppression of uh, information online is equivalent. She was talking about the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Berlin Wall, and she was saying that the modern equivalent of the Berlin Wall is actually the, the uh, national filtering and, and, and uh, uh, blocking of Internet sites and so forth. So this is a global issue of freedom of expression. Of course, the WikiLeaks, and the, it's continually evolving, but now with the uh, complete release of all the unredacted material, it's clear that uh, Assange actually went too far in terms of going beyond just uh, releasing what the press and others thought was safe to release, but actually, um, but that was due to a mistake. I mean, the password was let out because people were too lazy to change the password, but those things happen. And, um, so that, uh, but there are clearly errors in, inside of, of going overboard in terms of freedom of expression. And I'm not an absolutist, and most people in the internet world are not absolutists at all. They're trying to think about how to, how to balance these issues. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi, I'll, I'll we'll get back to her in a minute, but she, she was of course in, in um, house arrest in Burma, Miramar, and uh, she, uh, when she got out, the first thing she asked for was a Facebook page, which was interesting. And it just shows you the, how potentially valuable it is to uh, enable somebody to get online or to cut somebody <laughs> off from communication. Went from no, nobody being able to talk to her at all in a house arrest to being on Facebook and accessible worldwide. So what now, what, I, what this means, I think, um, the way of, of conceptualizing this in a very broad way is that, is that any communication technology is fundamentally about reconfiguring access. That is, any communication technology, whether it's print or the telephone or the internet, is a tool by which you and others will reconfigure access to information, to people. And so, for example, you, you're not just using the internet rather than going to the library to get information. You actually will find different things. So, what you know will be shaped by which technology you use. Um, who you know. Um, you might not just, instead of going, a, a, a single person, instead of going to a singles bar, might actually go to an online dating site or online or social networking to meet people. And it'll affect not only how you meet people, but who you meet. Um, a study I did, we found that people who met their partner online uh, their partners tend to be more diverse 
greater diversity in age, greater diversity in education by a, by a slight margin. So that actually going online to meet somebody actually enables uh, you to get out of your neighborhood, get out of your job place, and so forth. Um, so that it could be positive or, or negative, meeting somebody that's, that's uh, uh, you know, we always meet people we wish might, we might not have met. But, that, uh, but that's, uh, that's in real life and online. But people, more and more people are meeting people online. About um, most people who use the internet meet somebody online, and, and many of them go on to meet that person in real life. Um, and so it's uh, becoming, you know, uh, becoming a major way in which people are, are communicating with other people as well. Now, just, uh, just as an example, I want to introduce this concept of the fifth estate, and, and I think one of the ways of doing it is, is thinking about how you reconfigure access. Because when you, for example, I don't know what, what you do, but if you, if you say you're doing a project or you're trying to think about um, uh, even, even uh, a, uh, a medical issue or a, uh, uh, an academic problem or a personal project, where would you go first for information? Would you go on a telephone? Would you go to a neighbor? Would you go to a library? Well, most people often go first to the internet. Yeah, I was, I was, at, a, I was at a party, this, this was the most incredible thing. I was at a party and they, were, they had this mixed drink. Uh, I don't know what, I don't even know what it is now, but, but the hostess was saying, oh my gosh, she looked at the bottle and she said, I went on the internet to get the recipe for this drink and it's on the bottle. <laughs> so, <laughs> And it's like when I uh, when I tried to give my daughters when they were younger, they say, uh, "What's how did you know? What's the definition?" I said, "Well, here's the dictionary, or here's the encyclopedia." And they said, "Oh no, what? Uh, never mind, Dad. I'll I'll go online and get it." So, but uh, so the first place people often go is the internet. And where do they go online when they go to the internet? Sorry. Well, yes, to a search engine. They don't go to a specific place, so they don't go to. Uh, any particular place, like I want to go to the, our, my government uh, health department or anything else or the NHS, they go to a search engine and they look for what they are interested in. The only thing that uh, is, is competing with that now is our social networks. So they may say, get on Facebook and say, where would I find something about this? Or does anybody know someone who's familiar with this issue? Uh, or you may get a message from one of your friends on, face, on a social networking site and says, hey, there's an interesting article in the Financial Times. You should take a look at this, and then you'll link to it. So, um, so people are, first place they go, the Internet, first place, and when they go on the Internet, they don't go to a specific place. They go to uh, the space of flows, global network of, of, of content uh, where they can go anywhere they wish. And then... Um, so if they do that, what happens is they are not tied to any specific institution. Um, my students, if they, if they go anywhere in the world, they're not tied to what I assigned them to read. They're not tied to what I say. They can go anywhere, of course, and they could always do that in the library and so forth. But, but this is another step jump in terms of the degree of independence from whatever the institution tells them is the fact of the case. Facts of the, uh, these are the facts of the case. Well, I'm sorry, Professor, but I actually looked at this online. <laughs> uh, there's another view on this. And uh, 
Uh, so it gives people a degree of independence. And they are, they are actually a very basic part of what I would call the fifth estate. That is networked individuals who can go online and actually have an independent basis of authority and information to challenge other institutional authority. Yes? Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, that's, that's always the, I mean, you know, in, if you read a newspaper article or anything, you always, you have to have critical judgment. I think critical assessment of, of material is, is an absolute must uh, in any media, but clearly on the internet. Um, there are a couple of ways uh, that people are judging. One is uh, search engines themselves are, uh, are usually sending people to better sites rather than wor the worst sites, so that actually uh, poor information and poorly designed sites and, and inaccurate information is often uh, not referenced, is not linked to as much. So the structure of links on the web are create a sort of a, uh, a utility, sort of a, an indicator of, of, um, of quality. I, by the way, I hope you edited the site, because you can, if you see an error on Wikipedia, you can immediately suggest an editing of that. No, that's not the year, the year is such and such. And, uh, and it will be reviewed by a series of editors, and uh, it may be accepted if they, believe, if they judge you to be correct. But they may, you know, they will not necessarily agree with you immediately. But yes, that's, that's a good point. And then also through social networks, by somebody saying, I know you and I think you'd find this article important to you. you you're, that's another way you're judging what you're looking at online. But this is, you know, this is a huge question. I've got some anecdotes here, but yes. It's sort of follows from that slightly, not Wikipedia. My concern is that uh, a, a truth that is generated by a Google search can be self-fulfilling, can be established through the links to it can be established as the, the, the real truth over time. And there was a wonderful example yeah. of the, uh, recently, Eric Schmidt, who was chairman of uh, Google at the time, CEO mm -hmm. of Google at the time, uh, gave a talk in which he was in Berlin and said, there's this wonderful museum, I did this search, came up with a museum for Chinese art. Yeah. Uh, and the questions afterwards from the audience said, actually, you've got the wrong museum there. It's not that one, it's this one. Yeah. But the point there was that Google, through that, could establish the common belief that that is the right museum, and then establish a falsehood yeah. as the truth. So uh, I guess I have a concern, I think I'm interested in your views, as to how much that type of uh, self-perpetuating uh, inaccuracy can become the truth over time. Well, I, th I mean, I think uh, all sorts of, uh, that's one of the most common activities on, on the web and the internet are uh, challenging existing information. I mean, people are constantly criticizing uh, uh, authorities, and, and so you know, the very fact that uh, the newspaper—if you—if you see read a newspaper article, the, if the the ability to comment on these articles and challenge them is is enabled in part by the internet, um, and some of these issues, you know, are controversial. I mean, I mean, it is. I mean, there's no simple judgment on this because sometimes the facts of the case are disputed. I mean, nobody, you know, there are contentious views on who invented the internet or who, when was the internet invented, you know, these are not simple answers. The point is it's Google that invent their algorithms. Yes, well, I think, you know, my approach to that is, is that um, 
I think one of the key policy issues is to en enable, make sure that we en uh, enforce real competition online. And that I think if Google were ever to have such a monopoly that they, they were the only search engine in town, then I think that this would be dangerous. Because they're also, and I think it's quite dangerous that Google's getting into content production, rather than it should be a search engine. And I think that they will undermine themselves over the longer term by producing more and more content because then we will be skeptical of them sending us to the right place because we will assume that they may be promoting their own content. There will be a vertical integrated monopoly rather than a search engine. And um, so, but if Google loses its reputation as a fair and, you know, its algorithm is questioned as not being based upon link structures on the internet and an algorithm that leads you to the best sites. Uh, but again, they list, you know, thousands of sites usually for, you know, and... Uh, uh, that's true, but that's true. But you know what people do is, uh, if you watch people, they, uh, if they don't find what they're looking for on the first page, they redo their... So they don't need to keep looking through. They actually uh, j uh, rejig their search terms because, and, until they get it. But just, I, this might take a second, but I mean, I think this is a very hard issue to judge. But I, I, I was walking down Victoria Road where I live and the neighbor said, hey, good internet guy, come over here, you know, and, uh, and he said, look, my wife was uh, diagnosed with X, and she, he said, uh, it was a serious problem, and, and he, he basically said, I read everything I could find online about this, and, I, and it, boy, there's a lot of crap on, on the internet about this, but he read everything, and I talked to him, and he said, I know exactly what's going on now with his wife, how it will be treated, uh, he's got a a whole bunch of information he's going to go in to talk to the, the consultant and the physician about. And he felt he, he really understood it. He understood what the junk was that he found, what was the, where the credible sites were, and so forth. To me, you know, you might read that as, well, there's a bunch of junk online. To me, it means that this is an incredibly empowering technology that enabled this individual to go into a physician well-informed about what his wife was diagnosed with and, and the alternative treatment pathways and so forth. So, but that doesn't, that means that maybe a less educated person might not pursue that. You know, I realize the, you know, these are real challenges. And that's why the search engines and, and critical understanding of material has to be completely hammered within schools and other, other areas. And, you know, we just can't trust the first link or the or the first Wikipedia page but people use yeah also Wikipedia is often not used as the the source but it turns out to be often a, a, a starter a starting site where people see look look for references and what are the key references and they uh, yeah and you know and another but in the internet I, I mean uh, I would actually to relax a little bit about the best answer because uh, more and more uh, people using crowdsourcing and all sorts of non-sort of scientific approaches to getting information, and I'll talk to you about that in a minute, are get more and more open to uh, good enough information or better information than we will have if we don't use this tool or something that we can get much more quickly and it's, it's actually better than nothing. And uh, we, I'll, I'll show you this with, with some uh, other stuff. 
Okay, so, but you're right. Uh, uh, the internet can lead you to astray, but uh, but I'll 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 show you in a minute that uh, that certainly most people believe that it's actually quite powerful. It's one of these technologies that. Uh, it's, I call it an experience technology because I can explain what the internet does in terms of search, say search. Um, and then people say, oh, well, it's interesting. But then when they use it, they go, wow. <laughs> this is like what I, I was able to, how powerful this technology was in terms of finding what I needed. I mean, I, there were times when I could not find things in my office and I knew they were in my filing cabinet in my office and I was able to find them quicker on the World Wide Web. <laughs> than in my own, on my own desk. And I'm going, wow, this is really something. And uh, so, anyway, they continually impress people and it's becoming more and more the place people go for information. But you don't only go for information there, you actually contribute information. So more and more people are adding content. For example, you may rate, if you, uh, Wikipedia doesn't necessarily have this, but m many, many sites now have a site to rate information. And I'll show you some. And, uh, you could say, this is wrong. So you can rate this as a poor article or a poor treatment of the topic if you uh, feel that it's, it's not correct. And you can rate the author of many articles so that people lose reputation, articles get, get uh, liked or um, uh, rated by people so that people are contributing, the public is actually contributing to what we think is good and bad information online for better or worse. Um, but I, I'm going to make a big deal of this, and I'm going to say that just as the press was an important uh, innovation in terms of uh, creating a source of accountability to government and other institutions uh, since the 18th century, the, uh, the Internet is actually creating an ability for networked individuals to hold other institutions accountable, and that together this notion of networked individuals is, is what I would call uh, the fifth estate which is equivalent to the press of an earlier era, um, by which it networked individuals can hold other institutions accountable. And I'll give you some examples as I go through. But just to remind people, because nobody, uh, uh, many people don't know the concept of a fourth estate, but that's very British. Uh, uh, but this was a quote by Thomas Carlyle uh, uh, in Heroes and Hero Worship about Burke saying that there were three estates in Parliament. Uh, but he looked up at the reporter's gallery and said, you are the fourth estate. And basically that they are powerful because the press enabled them to reach the public uh, with information. And this would, had never been possible before. And that, that gave them the authority to be, be able to hold these other estates accountable. Nobility, the clergy, the commons. Um, I think the same thing can be said of the I think these you can modernize the feudal estates and um, the clergy or the public intellectuals and the nobility or the Googles and business elite and economic elites and uh, the commons would be government and, and uh, clearly the mob still exists but uh, Carlyle was not a Democrat and he didn't uh, totally had no conception of civil society uh, but um, uh, but I think that uh, there is also a fifth estate, and I'll get to that in a minute. But the press is usually viewed as the fourth estate. In the U.S., sometimes people regard the first three estates as the legislature, the presidency, and the judiciary. But that's not the, that's not the way it was originally defined. And 
anyway, the Americans redefined that. I don't know. Anyway. And um, the, uh, but let me show you, let me give you some evidence from the Oxford Internet surveys. We do surveys every other year. And um, they're face-to-face -face interviews. We have the best data of anyone in the UK about how people use the Internet, how they don't use it or use it, and what difference it makes. And they're face-to-face -face interviews of people 14 years old and over. But here, we ask them, where is the first place you go for information? And that dark, the blue in the bottom of the, it shows you that like for an issue for a professional school or personal project, 66% of people in Britain, the first place they go is the internet. Now only 73% of people in Britain have access to the internet. <laughs> but 66% of people in Britain go first to the internet for that information. And over time, if you, I've got, we've got tables over time. If you look over time, every two years we look, more and more of a larger proportion of people, the first port of call they go for anything on uh, any question, any fact, any issue, is the internet. Um, and if they look for information, you can see that, um, I, well, you probably can't see, but it's, uh, when in 2005, some people would go to a specific page, some people would go to a search engine, 20% would go to a search engine first, and then about 60% would go sometimes to one, sometimes to another. Over time, now 60% of people go first to a search engine. And that's in 2011, it's the first slight decline in the per people who go first to a search engine. More people go to a specific page, a, a few, and that's because of Facebook, I'm sure. Because some people first go to Facebook. Um, because that's, their, that's becoming the, uh, a landing page, and, uh, but equal, equal to, but again, it's the point of social networking sites and search engines being where people go online. Why people go on social networking sites? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Well, I do think because of the the the, the amount of information, what uh, thirty hours of video are posted every minute. So uh, how do you you know how do you continue to follow that kind of of proliferation of information and. That, but also the, I think the quality of, I think with the experience people have with search engines and with social networking sites, they find them valuable. And just, they're voting with their feet in a sense in which they, they know that they can find what they want uh, online and through using search or, um, so I, uh, you can see that, uh, I, I don't want to go through this, but if you look at the fourth line over, it says visit, visit social networking sites. 2005, only 17% of people who used the internet visited a social networking site. And then from 2007 to 2009, it, it climbed to 50%, and now it's 60%. So 60% of people using um, uh, the internet in Britain are using social networking sites. Again, that's, it says something about the fact that most people find it, it's not just kids. In fact, the biggest growth in the use of Facebook now is among middle-aged people who are working. And of course, this could make it the uncool place to be and therefore create a market for Google Plus or some other, uh, other 
place to be where the uh, younger people don't want to be with older people. Um, but just to give you uh, just to give you a little bit of background about the internet in Britain, but uh, the the proportion of people online in Britain has not really grown that dramatically from 2003, from 59% to only 73% now. So 73% of people in Britain are online, have access to the internet. About 23% still are have never been online. About 4% had been online and, but have no longer online. And that's a steady proportion of people who sort of churn, uh, they're off the internet because they've moved or somehow lost connection. And what this is, is what I'm calling first generation users are people who have a personal computer in the home linked to, uh, say, a broadband connection and primarily use that. The next generation user, which is growing, as a proportion are people who have three or more devices that they access the internet through and, and do three or, three or more things on the go when they're mobile in terms of checking, in, uh, checking mail and so forth. So you have multiple devices that are portable but also anchored in the PC in the home. And you find that's the growing proportion of internet users have this mobility over multiple devices to use the internet in every aspect of their everyday life. Yes. No. Uh, yes, but not uh, clearly. More and more people are are downloading video and downloading music, and but uh, actually, music has actually down down declined a bit. In it's not grown dramatically. But yeah, we look at that, but we don't look at anything specifically. Uh, like what, I mean, we try to cover so much that we don't. Anyway, I just want to show you this one, just to give you a sense that privacy is a problem. We asked if the use of computers and the internet threatens privacy, and you can see that uh, it, everybody does, but, uh, but the people who are most concerned about the internet's impact on privacy are people who have never used it, okay? And I'll get back to that, but the people, next generation users and people who, first generation users, are less concerned about privacy implications of, of the internet because they're experiencing it. And again, the internet is an experience technology and you people just don't get it unless they have experience with it. And one of the messages of my talk is if you haven't, if you're not using social networking or the internet, use it and because it's actually until you experience what you can do and what what issues there are it's very hard for you to understand um, in detail the value of it i'm going to race but i'm going to just say that the networked individual i think is a new phenomena where the individuals are empowered by this access to independent sources of information independent networks of people it's becoming increasingly central we ask people how is whether the what is the most you know uh, what's the most essential uh, technology for getting access to information? And the internet is increasing. Over 30% believe that the internet is essential for their information needs, more so than they do radio or, or uh, the newspaper, uh, and about as much as they th view broadcast television. Um, but I'll just, I want to draw a distinction to help you to understand what I mean by the networked individuals. Because networked institu all institutions use the internet to enhance and maintain their communicative power. So 
uh, health institutions, like uh, I, I'm on a committee for the NHS Direct. NHS Direct has a web first strategy. You know, go to the web first rather than use the telephone or, or uh, go to visit a physician. Well, that's a strategy to in maintain and enhance the NHS. Uh, it's um, um, more or less effective, but it's uh, this idea of web first. The web is designed to help support the NHS, and that's wonderful. But if you ask an individual about their health, they're not necessarily going to go to the NHS. They're going to go to the web, and they'll go to the World Wide Web, and they may get information from anywhere in the world about what their issues are. So they not only search information, but also a, a woman I met last night is one the founder of the UK Children with Diabetes advocacy group. And they have 500 people who have children who have type 1 diabetes. And she was so frustrated in her inability to get good advice from her consultants and so forth about how to treat and how to deal with type 1 diabetes, she created a support group of parents. And all of a sudden, they have an independent network of 500 parents and others who are sharing information and supporting each other and giving advice on how to deal with a family with, with a long-term serious illness. And um, the other thing, so that you, this is also net, the networked individuals where you have an, a network of people, not just access to information, but access to people that are independent of any given institution. And also physicians networking on CERMO. That, that, um, this CERMO is a, a Latin for conversation, and it's a uh, site where there are over 50,000 physicians in the U.S., and the, any physician on this site can ask a question of any other physician. So they can say, uh, uh, look, I'm giving this drug in combination with another drug. Has anybody noticed any of these following side effects from that? And in two weeks, after this poll has been out for two weeks, they will not show any of the results until two weeks, but after two weeks, they will give a feedback and they'll show how doctors answered the question around the, around the U.S. And then immediately in two weeks, they have a, an answer in terms of, you know, a large proportion are seeing the same side effects I'm seeing, and maybe I should stop using this uh, combination. Um, is valuable enough that the Center for Disease Control invests in this, pharmaceutical companies invest in it to ask questions so that they could maybe save millions in a lawsuit or anything else in the future but by getting early information. Now, going back. Obviously, the only way to get good information is to do a clinical trial. A clinical trial will cost millions of dollars, take years to conduct, and uh, won't help that person in the next two weeks. And, and so people are getting more and more relaxed about, yes, it doesn't mean that we won't do clinical trials, but we'll also crowdsource information sometimes and, uh, to find out. Now, if a doctor gives ridiculous answers, actually the other doctors rate each doctor. The doctors are anonymous, so no pharmaceutical can bribe a doctor or try to uh, game the results. Um, doctors get rated up or down in terms of the quality of their advice and the quality of their comments. It's a brilliant system for quick information that's good enough to have more information than you might otherwise in a lone physician in a rural hospital or other. And so you're not going to your, your institution, you're going to your colleagues around, around the country. So in every area, news, democracy, education, health and medical care, uh, you see the same kind of Sorry, thing. Yes, yes, please. Not in every area, 
Yeah, yeah, no, I think, I, yeah, more and more people, people trust the internet and, you know, uh, people trust the internet as about as much as they do broadcast news. They trust it more than they do the newspapers, but they do not have blind trust. In the, and, and clearly there's more and more information online about uh, uh, commercial, you know, uh, individuals creating their own Wikipedia page or people writing, uh, writing a review of their own book on Amazon or, you know, clearly this is well known and it's well publicized and so people are, uh, should be more skeptical. But it, often a lot of this is, is online itself in terms of this criticism. I totally agree with you that you can't have blind faith in anything you see online or offline. Um, of course, you, you know, the same thing happens in newspapers, okay. Uh, there, is a, there was a beautiful website that basically tracked how many press releases ended up being published in all the newspapers, all right? So the newspapers were basically just taking the press release from an organization, publishing it as news, and uh, they used uh, artificial intelligence to basically track and follow the stories. We had a project once that followed jokes around the world, but we uh, followed the stories, and as you could tell which you know which stories are basically not edited, and and therefore you could rate newspapers by how lazy they are in terms of not actually researching the story, not calling the person who released it, et cetera. So the internet is used to actually hold the press accountable, but it's also being used to hold these others. I, it happens, but I, I think regulation by, because you're doing this and thousands, millions of eyes are on you, uh, there's a chance that other people will recognize that this is not good information or not a good review, not a valid review. Um, I, I just want to, for example, the, the um, Mumsnet, uh, a group of, of mothers who, professional mothers who help each other, support each other to figure out how to deal with life and career and so forth, actually were the ones who turned around the discussion of the phone hacking issue because this has been an issue for years and had really not been dealt with by government or the, or the press seriously until Mumsnet said this is enough. The, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, hacking of this young young girl's phone uh, that was uh, that had been abducted and so forth was was over the top and Mumsnet created a campaign and it turned completely the issue of phone hacking into a major political issue. So again, they were holding the press accountable for not not doing their job well. Um, I'll just give you one example. I paid a bribe. This is, I love this. I, I was interviewed on, uh, I did an interview for BBC4 about these bribery websites. The best one is uh, ipaidabribe.com. And um, in India, of course, there's been, you know, of the, there's been a, a major hunger strike uh, in India and that's ended now, but to, to try to put corrupt, corruption, anti-corruption back on the agenda. But it began with these bribery sites where basically individuals posted a website and said, uh, if you pay a bribe, tell us about it. And they, they, an individual says, I paid a bribe to a police officer at this corner to get off a ticket or to not pay my parking or to get my car back. They, they post uh, exactly the, um, um, so they take the name of the person, they anonymize it, so nobody's going to be 
uh, uh, subject to retribution. They anonymize who they paid the bribe to, so it's, it's a nondescript person, a police officer at such and such a location. And then they aggregate this information, and they were aggregating, and they could really show how many bribes are being paid across India in different states. So where the bribery is the biggest problem, what areas the bribery is, is, is located in. And it created such a furor that, um, that the um, uh, government raised the priority. It, it led later to this uh, uh, hunger strike and so forth. It's raised the, the agenda for anti-corruption in India. And, and then later on, there were six, when, uh, a week after that, there were six or seven anti-bribery sites in China as well. The Chinese government took them down. They came back up. <laughs> so the government was unable to suppress these, and they've actually emerged again. So, they, uh, so anyway, this is an example of a fifth estate that is enable networked individuals to network in ways that can hold other institutions accountable. I'm going to zip through this. But there's clearly, you know, there's reputational damage of a Facebook page if somebody, you know, the famous pictures of somebody drinking at a pub that, that maybe they'll lose a job or not get, in, you know, people uh, interviewing people and looking on Facebook or the Google to see what they can find out about a person before they interview them. and. So there's reputational risk. There's a, we discussed the privacy issues of tracking and location. Um, human flesh search, the misuse, of, the misuse of the internet and crowdsourcing and so forth are real serious issues. Human flesh searches, like after the riots, the idea of posting the photographs of every individual on the web and on posters and everything else so that people could identify individuals. I think we could b debate whether that's good or not, but, it, but, it, but it's, this human flesh search is, is worrisome in a sense that it creates a very Orwellian kind of notion of, of, of using society to police, to police everyone. And um, so, well, the, uh, by the way, you know, and the, obviously the England riots and the cleanup afterwards, I mean, uh, so much was, I think there was an exaggeration of the degree to which BlackBerry Messenger Service was, uh, was a factor in, in orchestrating the riots, but be that as it may, that was hugely important to the social clean, the cleanup of, of, of London and other areas that was all orchestrated on social networking sites um, immediately after. So it can be, you know, it's a, uh, a tool that can be misused. And, um, but I want to I try to close down in a couple of minutes so that we have time for debate and questions. But um, this chart I like because, uh, I, as I said, the, the people's perceived uh, value of the internet for them for information is in one example has really increased from over time, and now it's like over 70% of people believe it's, it's very significant or essential for them, their information needs. Um, this line here is trust in government, um, which is about 18% in 2003 and about 20% in 2009. It, yes, the UK. So trust in government continues to hug about the 20% line. 70% think the internet is an increasingly important source of information. 
And then from 2005 to 2009, a dramatic increase in the proportion of people who think the internet should be regulated. Okay, well what, what is this? Okay, so <laughs> you don't trust government, but you want government to regulate the internet. And, um, and yet the internet is becoming a more and more valuable tool. Um, the, uh, you can see this in 2000, what's nice, I, I'm, I'm a little bit pleased by uh, in 2011 there's no increase, actually a slight decrease in the proportion who think the internet should be regulated. This is this all, 48% think there should be more or more regulation of the internet. And where it's located is the non-user and ex-users of the internet are much more likely to say that the internet should be regulated rather than the people who use it. Women more than men and clearly retired people more than people who are younger or in working life. So in a way, people who have the least experience online or um, other reasons for being more worried about other people's use of the internet are, are more likely to think greater regulation is necessary. Um, I think my general point is that I don't think, I don't think, I think it's, these are very serious concerns that have to be dealt with, but they are not reason for panic. That there are all sorts of um, ways in which they are being dealt with. First of all, the, the internet is extremely valuable. It's creating a fifth estate. It's a very important new institution in liberal democratic societies. Um, individuals are learning over time to use the right privacy settings to use services that have greater respect for the privacy of information that they uh, that they uh, that they upload for for those services providers are beginning to compete to say that we have better more usable privacy settings that we are going to protect the information more than others um, so that the industry regulation is likely to be important here even though you know you could say Google is going to be is such a monopoly, but there you know it is Baidu in China. There are other search engines around the world that are becoming companies as large or larger than than Google, and um, and Google can you know if it loses trust, a, a, a site on the internet can lose lose people very quickly. And basically that. Um, you have to under, we need to understand not as in any absolute sense of focusing on privacy, nor on freedom of expression, nor on any of the rights. It's like what I've talked about in a, in a, in a book we did for UNESCO about the, uh, an ecology of choices, about liability, about freedom of expression, about privacy, about all of the various human rights with new technical innovations and so forth. There's an ecology of choices being made that are reshaping freedom of expression, privacy in, the, in a digital age, and so forth. And we have to have a very broad understanding of this full ecology of choices that we're making as individuals, as institutions, as governments, um, that are reshaping human rights in, in the digital age. And that's one of the, the efforts of the OII, is to try to uh, further, that, further that discussion. <clears throat> 